So I'd have to say my favorite gaming memory is several years ago when we were living in Corpus Christi, uh, I met a total stranger in a gaming store, and he started coming up to me because of a book I was looking at and was telling me all about this game that his best friend was in and how great this game was and how he really wanted to meet the GM. And so he started describing this game to me, and I was like, wow, that sounds really familiar. And it wasn't until he got to the part where the astronauts finally got down from the space station and landed on zombie-infested Earth, because I was running all Flesh Must Be Eaten, that I realized it was the game I was running. And that was probably the most interesting, the best thing that's happened to me with gaming, that a total stranger was so impressed that he, he wanted to be in a game that, that I ran. I thought that was great. Um, but that would have to be it for favorite gaming memory. Uh, I am Cassandra Strife, and I am the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. Vapor Network is the bomb. The cutting edge of geekdom. Comics, advice, D&D. Movies, video games, RPGs. Finding it's easy, just stay calm. VorpalNetwork.com This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. Continue Magazine, a quarterly magazine for gamers of all types, and listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon store. Hey, this is Elminster Shadowdale, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley. In this episode, we'll pretend to be lords, complete quests, and earn our victory points as we discuss Lords of Waterdeep. And with us today to discuss Lords of Waterdeep is the online DM himself, Michael. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be back. And you're fresh and rested and ready to go. I'm sure you took your whole uh, cruise vacation just to to build up the energy to get on and talk about Lords of Waterdeep, right? Absolutely. I'm I'm rested and raring to go. Did you bring the game with you on the trip? I brought some games, but that one was a little too bulky to fit in luggage. So, yeah, sorry. (laughs) But I did teach some people how to play D&D on the cruise. So, all good. All right. I'll I'll give you a pass then. Thank you. Uh, but before we get into Lords of Waterdeep, we have some news to chit-chat about, and in the effort to keep up with the conversation about D&D Next, we thought we would highlight the last uh, handful of blog posts that they have posted on, on the subject. Um, the first on our list is the idea of morale rules. You know, in earlier edition, there were always rules about you know making people run away and, and what have you. Um, and then in third edition, those started to fade away and fourth edition, those rules are kind of there, but not in heavy usage, kind of tucked away in, in the back corner of the game. What do you guys think? Should morale rules be, be part of the game from the get go? Um, what, sh- how should they play a role? When would they be used? Go. <laughs> 
Uh, well, I'll, I'll chime in with my thoughts. So with the caveat that I haven't actually been up on the discussion just because I've sort of been out of the country for a while. Sure. But <laughs> uh, I haven't ever played the earlier editions very much, so I'm mostly used to fourth edition without a lot of rules for things like morale. Um, I think that I probably wouldn't use them if we had strict mechanics for at this point in the battle, you're supposed to make a roll, and if it if results in such and such as a result, then monsters run away or do whatever. Uh, I probably wouldn't use that personally. I'm I think that DMs should be encouraged to roleplay their monsters. You know, intelligent creatures probably won't always fight to the death. But uh, I don't think that I would specifically use the rules if they were there. But I wouldn't object if they were there. I'd just ignore them. Okay. Tracy? Uh, I didn't... I've played a little bit of older editions where the if you had henchmen and stuff, they would be under the DM's control and you'd have to check morale every so often. And as a player, I never really liked it. And I don't think I like it as a DM either. But I know it's kind of an important thing for some DMs, so I guess if they're there, I'd probably do the same as Michael and take them out. Yeah, see, I've, I've, I sort of like the the take that Fourth Edition has on the sort of the morale concept, right? In that the if, if when you've hit some gotten gotten somebody to a certain point, I think the Fourth Edition rules are when they're bloodied, then you can do an intimidate check and cause them to surrender or run away or whatever. Yeah, um, I like that as a as an active way to force morale rather than as a check that I have to continuously or, or constantly keep up with or remember to do as a DM is just one more sort of thing to keep track of that even I who have played some older editions, um, we almost universally always just ignored those rules when they did exist anyway. Right. So I like the idea of there being a mechanical support for that moment of story. Um, I also like the idea of the DM having the freedom to ignore it and do what they want and have the monsters act intelligently, like like you guys are talking about. Um, but I'm not opposed to there being sort of an active thing that players can do to try to push the envelope on, on that a little bit. So, I think it would be cool, too, to have, instead of the older edition morale rules, uh, benefits for DMs or players to, to, to do that uh, on their own. Mm-hmm. To ha- have either their characters or their monsters or something withdraw on their own, but I know that's a totally different discussion. Right. Well, and I feel like a lot of this this is probably like, ironically, the concept of morale and and ending a combat early is probably the most important in fourth edition. Right. Where the combats can go the longest, you know. That's mm-hmm. a good point. So if they're going back to targeting back to older editions and combats are a lot faster, then maybe I just don't care at all, you know. Right. Okay, next, monsters. Um, there's a, a careful balance that can sometimes be be played with in terms of how much flavor and how much mechanics to put into a stat block. In my opinion, 4th edition probably went too far into the direction of, of mechanics and left out some flavor. Uh, the thing that always drives me crazy is there's no flavor for a dragon's breath weapon. And it's just titled breath weapon. You know, I want it to be titled... I at least want the titles to give me some flavor, like Cone of Acid or Lightning Bolt or whatever, you know? <laughs> it's just so just so I know what the stupid breath weapon is. Right. How to describe it at the table right. when that yeah, happens. Yeah. yeah. And I, there have definitely been times that I've run a monster, and halfway through the combat, I finally get one of the mechanics. It's like, oh, that's what this power is that the monster is using, and mm-hmm. I totally misunderstood it and was describing it in a very... Well, just I wasn't really describing it, just you know, saying the monster does this without really putting the flavor into it. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the same time, though, I'm not sure how much I'd want in the stat block. Like I want mm. that to exist, but like I know with a lot of the player books, I think you know we talked about the um, 
the Heroes of the Feywild book and the, the Elemental Chaos book, how when they're showing, when they're talking about player powers, they'll have a little introductory paragraph of flavor text of what this power looks like. And then the text for the power itself is very rules-based. I, I like that for monsters, too. And I think they've done a better job, like in the Monster Vault um, and later books, of giving you a little bit more of that, of you know the flavor of the monster. And I could see them doing more still where they flavor the monster powers. But in the stat block, it's not... It's not there by default, just because I think for space reasons, once you know the monster, you don't need that anymore. Right. Although, on the other hand, when I'm actually sitting down at the table and running things, I usually don't have the books with me. I, I prepare digitally, and so I, all I have with me is the stat block. Yeah. <laughs> so if I don't That's have a, a good point. If I don't have a little – I don't need, I don't need a, even a full sentence. I just need some sort of clue on what to, to – you know, just a tagline or something just to remind me, oh, this is what this power is supposed to look like. Yeah, one line think, of flavor text. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets easier if the monsters don't have to have their uh, uh, standard and then encounter recharge powers and maybe even a daily for a really big monster, although mm-hmm. most uh, one-time use is pretty much the same as a daily. Uh, so if the monsters get uh, get smaller, you know, that helps too. And mm-hmm. if and then you could have things like bring back monster themes that they tried to have in 4th edition a bit and make, and make them really... Uh, better would be cool because you could have similar fighting styles of, among different monsters right and then have the flavor text that really uh bring it out there uh for certain for humanoid monsters in particular and then have uh, larger amounts of text in monster manuals dedicated to the non-humanoids mm-hmm. uh that describe better how they fight which is actually something that third edition did better than fourth in terms of right. being able to, to throw on monster templates to the point that it almost became a joke right because then you've got a a legendary half golem, fiendish, you know, whatever. You can just keep stacking template on template on template on template until it becomes ridiculous. Right. Um, but that I think that's a testament to for a good DM and a good uh, you know somebody doing some good design work. There's a lot you could do with that that, that was really easy to do. Um, and I think fourth edition could have done that better. And I think the thing that would have made it even the, the killer way it could have been better for me is. If there was a way in the monster builder to just say, "Oh, apply this template. Here are the powers I want from it. Right. Done." You know, um, but that never quite got there. So, and then, and in fourth edition too, the in the uh, I forget tactical encounter setup. There's always that ta- monster tactic section that section that nobody else, nobody. A lot of times, they rarely uh, really develop that, and they they could have put more of the flavor in there too. Mm-hmm. I, I know that doesn't necessarily help you with your digital thing, right? But at least then there would have been more information because mm-hmm. I, I definitely had problems uh, when I started out with fourth edition. I didn't know what most of the monsters were, and I'd, I again and again come up across monsters. I had no idea what they looked like, and my players like, "Well, what does it look like?" I was like, "I don't know. You tell me because you've played this before." Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had that too. I, I, I feel you for the same reason, and I, you know, I could see for Jeff your point about you like to prepare digitally. Depending on what they do for digital tools for the next edition, um, you know that might be something where they they give you the option. You know, when you're looking at the compendium, you can have a, a toggle that sort of like the expanded text block with, mm-hmm. with more description, or if you like the brief version, you can set that as your default, and then you know you can get it how you want it. Sort of like opening up the the advanced search features, you know, on on search engine and things, you know. Yeah, you I, just, I, I tend to think of it as uh, like in interactive fiction games like Zork and stuff, where you have the sure. verbose descriptions of the rooms or the brief descriptions. <laughs> Very good. So the next conversation they were having was about paladins. How do you different in, in a in a world where you're hearkening back to, or an edition where you're hearkening back to older editions, the cleric 
can theoretically stand up in the front lines, wear heavy armor, and sort of act a role as a holy fighter. So they've been trying to figure out, okay, then what's a paladin? If that's what a cleric can be. Um, and they went back to some some tropes and said, okay, do they need to be mounted experts? You know, experts in mounted combat? Do they need to be uh, a defender like they were in 4th edition? Do they need to be able to smite evil and resist damage and do all have all these non-combat bonuses? Or do they need to have something completely different that they haven't thought of? Um, what do you guys think? Where do where do paladins fit in, and how do they how are they differentiated from clerics? Well, I mean, again, I'm more of a fourth edition player, so I'm familiar with the paladin as a class there. And and really, the paladin in fourth edition feels, in a lot of ways, a lot like the fighter. You know, they are both mm-hmm. the, the defender role. Um, certainly have the divine power source in the paladin, but in a lot of ways, it's, it's more flavor than anything else. I mean, I, I basically think of the paladin as like a fighter, but he gets lay on hands to do some healing. And I know there's different options you can take with paladins, but that's that's how I've tended to think of them. Um, and so I found it interesting to to see that as they think through this design process, they're starting to feel like, man, the paladin is not different enough from the cleric, where I was, I would have thought, not different enough from the fighter. So I guess to me, I look at it sort of that that's the hybrid between the fighter mm-hmm. and the cleric. You get a paladin. Sure. Yeah. I mean, should... There's other ones like that, too. A ranger is kind of a hybrid between a fighter and a druid, to me, at least. Uh, and, oh, I mean, part of me likes to have a paladin, and I know there's a long history in D&D for it, on the other hand. And and it's good to uh, to give people who are new to the game and maybe have knights as the, their vision of, of a quintessential D&D character, a, an easy way to build that. But they're so similar to me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, and, see, and I think I feel the same way. I don't feel the need like does it have to be its own class. I understand that it does have to because it has been there throughout the game, so they will have to do it. But I think that if if they rolled out an addition that the paladin was just like a subclass of fighter or special rules for a hybrid fighter cleric, you get a paladin. I'd be happy with that. That'd be enough for me. And see, here's the thing: is that as I go back to my second edition days, I don't remember this being an issue. Like the paladin was not a defender. <laughs> You know, the cleric could wear armor and be up in the front lines. The paladin was still the paladin, and I don't remember feeling like they seemed similar at all. You know, Mm. the cleric was primarily a caster who could get up in the front lines because he could wear armor. Like, wearing armor does not make one a paladin. The paladin was fighting like a fighter. They went up with their sword and were hitting things, but they also had some divine little tricks they could do, and they could cure diseases, and they had the lay on hands, and so they had these holy paladin-like things that made them feel distinctly different from either the, the fighter or the cleric. And I don't remember it ever being an issue. I feel like you can differentiate them in enough ways that they could still both be divine, and they, right. could, and they could both wear heavy armor, and it's okay. Right. Well, I think a lot of what differentiates the Paladin is out-of-combat stuff, you know, all the fluff around it. Um, I mean, I don't know if they're going to go back to the days of Paladins always have to be lawful good, um, but oh. but I know, I mean, I never played a lot of 3rd edition, but I read the books at least, mm-hmm. and made up characters and, and gave it a lot of thought. And I remember the Paladin seemed like, wow, this, this guy's really powerful, and the drawback is that you have these restrictions sort of out-of-combat about... Mm-hmm alignment and what you can do and what you must do and uh and i think that was a big part of what made me understand ah this is what a paladin is it wasn't mm-hmm. so much in combat you hit things with the sword and, and have some prayers it was out of combat you act this way yeah right and yeah and i know when this came up one of the big discussions was about alignment again and uh i i want there to be able to 
be paladins who are not lawful good, but you know. Yeah. I I think every deity should be able to have a paladin. <laughs> I think every deity should be able to have a holy warrior. Whether you call it a paladin or make other classes and call it something else, I don't know. Yeah, yeah it might just be a terminology thing. Yeah, I, I mean, guess. I, the thing is, I don't like the, the more classes solution sure, sure, sure. because that just it makes makes things messy, both in how do you keep enough space between them to make sure that the classes are designed differently, and then also just... Uh, it, it limits your story too, right? Like, so I, in a lot of the novels we've read, people have changed their deity that they've worshipped, and that gets kind of weird. <laughs> You're suddenly an entirely different class. Sure. On the other hand, I feel like, and you could do it as different builds of a class, mm-hmm. and that could and that could work because I feel like a lawful good paladin should not play like a chaotic evil paladin. You know, they shouldn't mechanically do the same thing in a fight. Um, they should have different powers and different things that that reflect sort of that aspect of them, and I think you can maybe do that in, in builds. Um, yeah, which, which is which, paladin shouldn't lay on hands to heal his allies. I mean, that's just not going to work. work. <laughs> yeah, but I think you can do that, and that's something that you know older editions didn't necessarily do well. This concept of builds, right? Mm-hmm. You were either a fighter or you were a paladin or you were a ranger or whatever, and there was the, the only place where you got a lot of choice to to differentiate yourself. Um, in significant ways was uh, if you were a spellcaster and then you, you had the, the ability to choose your spells, right? Right. So let's move along in the interest of time. Uh, they also had a, a conversation about the role of backgrounds and themes. They've, they've talked previously about sort of how backgrounds and themes are going to work a little bit. Uh, and they wrote this, this second article sort of in that, in that topic dealing with the, the issue of, okay – how do we feel about the, the idea that the place where you get your skills mm-hmm. and your feats come from your background and theme? Right. Uh, or do we want skills and feats to be independent of your background and theme? You use a background and or a theme to, to differentiate your character in one way, but also be able to make decisions and choices about how you're going to do skills and feats independent of that. What do we think? Um, what? Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that uh, again. I'm not, you know, in, I haven't been part of all the discussion so far, but mm-hmm. I, 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 I kind of like the appeal of saying, well, you know, what you're good at comes not necessarily just from your class, but from certain other things too. Um, it, it's a, it definitely a question where I wonder what role balance between classes is going to play because I, I get the feeling, and, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I get the feeling that, um, like in earlier editions before fourth. And even fourth edition too, there are certain skills that it's hard for you to get access to if you're part of a certain class. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to get athletics, but you're a wizard, you know, you're gonna have to take some kind of feat to get to get it or something along those lines. And and I feel like maybe it's just to a small degree, but that's a bit of a balance thing. You know, you can't be good at everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess over time, more and more fourth edition has broken that down. We have made it easy to say, sure, you take a background that makes something a class skill or gives you a bonus to a certain skill. And that hasn't broken the game. That hasn't totally unbalanced things, at least not in my tables anyway. So, um, so that was my first concern when I heard about this. Um, and in the end, though, I think that you know, fourth edition at least has proved that it's not that big a deal if you let a wizard be trained in Arcana or uh, you know something else. Um, it, it can work all right. So I, I kind of like it. I think it feels now, good from a flavor perspective. Now that said, I think part of that comes from the class glut. You know, the idea that that fourth edition is sort of approached. Um, the idea of creating more options as creating more classes. And so you have a lot more options to build. And if you want to take a 
a, a wizard who is trained in athletics, well, you know what? There might be a class that's kind of wizard-like that could do that you know, a little bit easier. And so you have a lot of options um, in terms of classes, and, and that creates a lot of options in terms of skills and, and the kinds of things you could do with that. Um, I, I, the, the one area where I'm, where I'm maybe a little bit questioning it is I, at the same time, I, don't, I feel like class should matter too. Yeah. In terms of skills, right? I mean, there are certain things. If you are a wizard, you should probably be good at doing magic stuff. You know, <laughs> if, yeah. you're, if you're a cleric, you should probably be good at religion stuff. So if it's all being delivered through um, what backgrounds and themes, then I, I don't know. I feel like class should matter in, in that equation as well. Well, but in the, in the past, class has been kind of has given you the list of skills you can choose from mm-hmm. or, or given you bonus points. Uh, bonus ranks or something like that in like 3, 3.5 uh, you could still have class give one or two and then have everything else determined by your background sure. or theme and background. And the nice thing about backgrounds and themes is that theoretically they, it done well they give both the player and DM more story that mm-hmm. they, they can hold on to in telling their own story which I, I like, like um, a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> and on top of it for me it, it pulls away maybe with it gives the ability for there to be a cultural layer and taking me, hopefully taking some of that pressure off of races for providing that sort of, <laughs> <laughs> which uh-huh. I would love, but I don't know if that's what they're thinking, Okay, but that's, that would be my vote is to, to do it that way and, and, and make stuff more cultural. Now here's another interesting insight that I have as I, as I look at this topic is this whole idea of, pulling some of these things out of class and putting them into backgrounds and themes is not like anything we've seen in any previous edition, you know, and which tells me that not everything they're doing is melding the, the previous editions together into one game, but they're actually doing, they're thinking anyway about doing something completely new and different in some areas as well. I find that encouraging. Hmm. I mean, I'll admit I've been a little bit worried uh, with the D&D <laughs> next talk. Is it just going to be, you know, greatest hits from previous editions? And, you know, to what degree will they? I mean, I like fourth edition, frankly. And I'm not saying that I'm going to just keep playing it forever. I, I kind of want to. I kind of want D&D next to be something I'm really going to enjoy because I, I think that would be a, a bigger community of players. And I'd mm-hmm. like to be a part of it. Um, but so it's nice to know that, yeah, they are at least looking at certain things that will be. Um, innovative that will not totally revamp the game and make it unrecognizable. I know that's been a big complaint about fourth edition for some people, but uh, but hey, if this makes it smoother, makes it work better, and makes it more feel like D anD D more to people, even though it hasn't actually been in the game before, they'll try it. I think that's good. Although you do run a little bit of risk, right? If I mean, if you're doing sort of the greatest hits of previous editions, and you're doing new stuff on top of that, <laughs> you're adding a a very serious level of complexity and granularity that could be problematic for an overall yeah. game. Like individually, they look they all look like great ideas, but all together, it creates a game where things are 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 layered upon layered upon layered to the point that it's hard to figure out what you're supposed to do and where you're supposed to put it, do it, and and all that. Hmm. Yeah, it's a tough task. It is. I don't envy them that. No. (laughs) All right. Shall we move on to Tome News? Sure. Two things. Uh, First of all, as I was scripting this episode, which is 194 if my count is is on, um, I realized that we're only six episodes away from episode 200, which, Mm -hmm. you know, is kind of a big deal. Uh, For episode 100, we had people call in and, and send in 
thoughts and whatever are just on, you know, why do we love D&D? Since, you know, the show's all about love and D&D, and I, I had some people talk about that. Um, I don't know what to do for 200. Like, I had that idea for 100 for a long time, well before I got to it. I don't have any ideas for what to do for 200. So I am welcome to hear any thoughts or ideas or opinions from listeners or from you guys that are guests on here. Um, The one thought that I've had is, you know what? I've never been surprised about what an episode was about because I I planned them all. Maybe this time Tracy has to do it and surprise me. Oh. That could be fun. Which could be fun. You want me to surprise you? I I I, I thought that might be one possible idea. Okay. Of, of, you know what, Tracy gets to pick the guests and the topics, and I'm just going to show up on the episode and not have any idea what we're doing that night. Oh, so you're going to play me? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, we, I we discuss everything together, and then I make the decision. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got to take the initiative around here. You always roll higher, so uh, sure. <laughs> but anyway, so for 200, I, I'm, I'd like to hear people's ideas, but at the same time, part of me wants to just leave it up to Tracy and not know what's going to happen until, until that, that recording happens. So, um, you know, maybe we should just tell everybody to email Tracy their ideas and not tell me at all. Okay. You want to do that? Sure. All right. So where can people email you? Uh, Tracy at saradarkmagic.com. Tracy at com. So email her your ideas. But don't tell me, and it'll be a complete surprise. And when we get on there, and it's like chock full of millions of special guests and what have you, then that'll be cool. No Sweet. pressure or anything, Tracy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, it's two hundred. This is a big deal, Tracy. <laughs> you don't want to be. Dis- you don't want to disappoint me. Okay. <laughs> I won't. If you do, then I am not giving you your skittles this year. <sighs> that'll be sad. <laughs> That'd be very, very sad if I don't get my Skittles. No. How will I make it through Gen Con without Skittles? I'm sure you still have ones from last year. I brought them to work. Did you? People, yeah, they ate them. Oh, yeah? You got rid of them all of them? Yeah. Well, you, like you were popular for a week or two. We were all hyped up. It's great. <laughs> cool. Uh, the, only, the other uh, Tome news thing that I thought might be worth mentioning is this would probably be a good pl- place to say, uh, you know, welcome to any new possible listeners we have because um, tomorrow, as of this recording, although it'll be several days uh, before this comes out, the Tome show is supposed to be featured on the CNN Geek Out blog. So this exciting. The Tome Show is going to be on CNN's website. How cool is that? That is very cool. Congratulations. So I'm looking forward to to seeing what Topher had to to write and what he had to say about the show and I'm uh anxious to to possibly invite some new uh listeners into the show. So I hope they enjoy this. I hope so too. All right. So, Should we talk about book club real quick? Yeah, tell us about book club. Uh, so our upcoming episode will be on Deathmark, the book by Robert J. Schwab, set in Dark Sun. And by the time people hear this, it'll probably we'll probably be recording it very soon, or it may already be recorded. Right. So what's the next book going so to be so that, people can prepare? We're going to do the end of the D&D comic. We already covered most of it. I've three, I there's did, three left. Yeah, I think we did 1 through 12, mm-hmm. and I think they went to 15. And and I, I've from what I've read on some forums, it's not officially gone. It's on a hiatus. They're not publishing anymore through the rest of the year. Right. But they're leaving the window open to to bring it back next year. So. And uh, the start of the Forgotten Realms. 
book? Yeah, uh, Ed Greenwood is writing a Forgotten Realms ongoing series. That that is the D and D comic for for the foreseeable future. So I look forward to to seeing how that goes and what that looks like. Continue Magazine. It is a quarterly magazine that discusses video games, board games, RPGs. If it's gaming, you can read about it at Continue Magazine. Uh, Tracy, have you had a chance to look at their first issue? I saw parts of it. Right on. Did you have it? What, what did you see in there? Anything that grabbed your attention? Put you on the spot. Some of our <laughs> friends are in this magazine, aren't they? If not now, I think I've heard from some people we know that are going to be writing for it. So it is another venue for people to read about gaming and maybe talk about gaming and write, write about it. Definitely, yeah. I look forward to seeing where it goes. There's only one issue out now, and they've got, you know, obviously three more planned for the year. So we'll, I, I look forward to seeing what they do. Yeah. It's, exci- yeah. it's always exciting to see, have another venue for, for gaming to be discussed. Yeah, looking at it right now, it looks very pretty. Yeah, yeah I, I love the picture with the Monopoly uh, tokens. Oh, yeah. And their war games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they really mix it up, though. They got war games, they got board games, they got RPGs. They, they, I, I, as I recall, issue one, there was, it seemed like maybe like 50% video games. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Looks like and, it, yeah. And then 50% other stuff. So, But they're very cool, and I appreciate them coming on and supporting the show and the Vorpal Network. For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community, the global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, alternate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com. Alright, so it's time to talk about Lords of Waterdeep, the game I've been waiting since Gen Con to have in my hands, and I have it now. So, yay! And yay. and it turned out to be a big disappointment and, and nothing you wanted it to be. <laughs> right? Wow. No. <laughs> Actually, I played it this weekend with my brother. I, I visited my parents, and uh-huh. uh, I got to play games with my brother for once. Sweet. And so we played a two-player game of it. Right on. Did that go well? Yeah, it went really well. I totally smashed him. I don't know that I... I've, no, I have, I, I've done two-player once. Yeah? Yeah. I haven't I just, done two-player yet. Since it's a political intrigue game, I didn't really smash him. I just got... 50 more victory points than he did. Mm-hmm. You outmaneuvered him. I outmaneuvered him. So let's talk a little bit about that. How, how does one play Lords of Waterdeep? Well, <laughs> one opens up the box and lays out the board <laughs> and <laughs> has an awesome time. Yeah, no, the, the game itself, it's, uh, I, I don't know if it's officially described as a worker placement game, but, but that's basically what it is. So if you've ever played, I've been describing it as like a fantasy version of Agricola or Agricola, depending on how you want to say it, which is a game that I love very much. Uh, my wife and I, we have like a custom set of Agricola with little clay animals that friends made for us because they love us so much. Um, and we've played that game hundreds of times. And when we played Lords of Waterdeep, it's like, yes, this has a a lot of what we love about Agricola, except it's set in a D&D universe, and it's much more streamlined. It's not as fiddly as Agricola. You can get it up and going much more quickly. Hmm. That's interesting, because 
their previous board game release, uh, at least new board game with new rule system, was Conquest of Narath, which to me I loved because it reminded me a lot of Axis and Allies. In, set in a D&D universe with little elements of D&D in it, you know, dungeon delving and that kind of stuff built in uh, to some, in some ways as well. So um, it sounds like this then does the same sort of thing, just with a different ga- type of game. Yeah, let's give Tracy a chance to talk, because I know you're excited, Tracy. What do you think? How would you describe a game overall? Yeah, how do you, how do you play, Tracy? How do I play? Well, I don't... I- so one of the big issues is that I don't really play a lot of board games, so I don't know how to describe it to other board game people. I know the term they tend to use is a euro game, and uh, you're not you're you're kind of competing against each other, but not in a not in a direct way. Like you're doing it through trying to amass victory points so that you're the you're the highest uh, person at the end, um, and also you may have an occasional. Uh, injury card or quest that can kind of mess with another person's play, mm. but but those are pretty limited. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, it's a lot more subtle the way you compete with others. Right. You know? So it, it's less about like fighting them and more about well, I've noticed they've picked up a lot of rogues. I need right. to, I need to stop them from collecting the rogues. They need to finish that quest. So I'm going to get the rogues now to stop them. You know. Right. And so basically, yeah, you you lay out the board and it's water deep, and there are different locations that you, you put your uh, agents in and you gain a certain resources from doing that. And you yourself are playing one of the Lords of Waterdeep and you get extra benefits at the end of the game from doing certain things. Oftentimes, like the ones I've tended to play with, and I don't know if there are others, it's if you completed certain types of quests, there are, I forget how many different types, at least four to there's six. Five. Right? So there's five. There's five. Five five suits of quests, okay. and yeah, I think there's ten different lords, each of which has a pair of quests to, like, warfare or arcana, or skullduggery right. or piety. With, um, with one exception. With one exception. The, the 11th I, lord is, is the building lord. Yes. Right. And so, uh, if you complete certain quest types, you get extra victory you tend you generally get extra victory points at the end. And so that guides, that helps to guide your individual play. Um, but in the quest area, you put out four at a time you might not have one you might not have the type of quest you need and two you might have the resources to complete a different quest so you may decide to do that anyway mm-hmm. but so it does help guide it and then i think as you play longer i haven't played that many games you can start guessing because n- nobody knows which lord you are but i think as you start g- gaining more uh, knowledge of the game and and knowledge of the different lords you can start guessing who's playing which lord and then you can make it more competitive directly competitive if you want you can. <laughs> and you don't even you don't even need to know which lord they are you just need to know which kind of quest they seem to be going for right you know yeah that's what really matters. I mean, you can I, the first time they pick up a quest, you can pretty much tell. Okay, that's the kind of quest they want because nobody bothers to waste the time picking up quests that aren't connected to their lord. You know. Well, right. I don't know. At least Sometimes in, in, in the games I've played so far, we've been much more straightforward. So yeah, there, there's it's generally one, that way. There's one building that uh, if you put your guy, if you put one of your agents there, you can pick up a quest from the quest board, and if you can complete the quest right away, you get extra victory mm-hmm. points. So that can sometimes change it because you want to look at the resources you currently have to sure. see which quests you can uh, you can do right away. And that's the other thing is the the building thing makes it very interesting because uh, you can buy a building and you put it on on the side, and and those offer different resources and different combinations than the the the, the default ones that come with the game. But as long as you're not the one that puts your agent there, you can gain extra resources. So 
you you might want to buy buildings if if you see that you notice somebody keeps completing certain types of quests that require certain adventurers uh, you may want to buy a building that you think they're going to hit a lot so that you get the extra resources from it mm-hmm. yeah I, mean, I think it's worth taking a minute to kind of for the people who haven't played just give a, a brief sort of summary of the mechanics so right. everybody has a certain number of agents um and they're like little people and and on the number you have depends on the number of players in the game so if you have five players everybody only has two agents if you only have two players you each have five i think to start with or four to start with something four like that yeah, four to start. You get a fifth one later on. Uh, and what you're doing with your agents on your turn, you take turns, everybody places an agent. You put the agent on a building, which could be one of the, I think, ten buildings that are available to start the game, some of which have multiple spots. Or it could be one of the buildings that gets built throughout the game. So as you buy a building, which is one of the actions, you buy a building, um, that adds new options to the game that people can take. And uh, whenever you go to one of those spaces, some of them give you resources, which is either going to be gold or one of the four types of adventurers, which are represented by little colored cubes. So clerics or rogues or fighters or wizards. And you collect those up in your tavern. And what you're going to use them for is completing quests. So that's one of the other sort of resource things in the game are these quest cards. And like Tracy said, you have usually there's an inn uh, that has four different quests to choose from. And when you go to the inn, you get to pick one of them. And there's certain things that let you get quests in other ways, like draw one randomly at the top of the deck. Um, and then at the same time, so you're collecting your resources, trying to complete your quests. Quests give you points, and quests sometimes do other cool stuff too. Um, but you also have these intrigue cards that uh, you collect at certain spots and can play it at, at other spots. And those are the things that add extra bonus stuff to the game. Your quests are public knowledge. Everybody knows what quests you're working on. Uh, but your intrigue cards are secret. And sometimes they'll just give you bonus resources or extra actions. Uh, but sometimes, like Tracy was saying, they'll let you mess with somebody else. Either you know, it costs them resources or you steal resources from them. Or you give them a quest, kind of a crappy little quest they have to complete first before they can complete any others. Uh, but even with the intrigue cards, most of them don't directly screw other players. A few do. But but in general, they, they tend to give you extra stuff. And, and maybe it sometimes costs play or something. But there's even a few intrigue cards that give you something, and then you have to give a smaller amount to somebody else. Like you get four gold and give two gold to somebody else. I find, kind of I find most too. of them do that. Most, yeah, most, most of them that help you um, help you, but you have to help somebody else too. Yeah. Right. So, so throughout the game, you, you take turns placing your agents, and one of the actions you can take is to get like the first player token that lets you go first next round for placing agents, which is sometimes really important. If there's only one spot on the board that's come up that lets you get wizards and you really need wizards, then you might have to take the first player token so you can get wizards next round. And uh, you keep taking turns placing agents, in the, and there's eight rounds in the game. Uh, in the fifth round, everybody gets an extra agent, um, which is kind of, it makes sense because by that point in the game, there's a lot more buildings in play. Um, but it's kind of fun because you know what you do with your agents makes it so that that spot is now not available for somebody else to put their agent there. So it's partly what do I need most, and it's also partly well, what do I want to take before the other guy gets it because I know he's going to take it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of strategy there. Absolutely. And then- and with the quest cards, there's two types. There's an ordinary quest, which normally, as soon as you complete the quest, you just want to put it in your pile for for later uh, when you count up at the end of the game. And then there are the plot quest cards that can actually change uh, the game for you. Uh, once you've completed it, You like my brother had one where if he did, anytime he got a rogue, uh, he, got an, he got something extra. I think it was two gold or something like that. Hold on. So I think that's a pretty good rundown, sort of, of how the game works, mm-hmm. and, and and they've purposely left a slot open on it for possible future expansions as well. 
Um, let's talk briefly about the physical product itself, the game pieces, the, the tokens, the box, all that kind of stuff. Michael seems excited by this, so oh, I'm going to let him go first before I get to my two nitpicky little complaints. Go. Okay. Well, I have no complaints. I'll say the, the two things that impress me the most about the physical product itself. Number one is the plastic tray inside it that holds the stuff. Yes. It is just so well designed. I mean, it's it, everything has a place. It's so organized. And, and little things like the cards. You know, the cards in a typical game, if, they, if there is even a spot for cards rather than making you put a rubber band around them, just toss them in a box, it'll be... Like like maybe they'll have a little channel on either side where you can stick your fingers out in to try to grab it, but it's always hard to grab that card at the bottom. You might have to take another card and kind of try to pry it up and pain in the butt. With this one, what they've done is they put a little like trapezoid-shaped thing in the bottom of each well for the cards, so that you push down on one side and the other side pops right up, and you slide the whole deck of cards right out, which it's is fantastic. Very yeah. slick. I've never seen anything like that before. Oh yeah, I mean, it um, is, it is, and they do it on for every single little tray where it might be difficult to get something out. Yeah, every little yeah, spot yeah. where it might be hard to get something out, they they gave it a little spot where you can. Put push down on it and it pops up and you can grab it and it's so slick. Oh yeah. And, was, and they even and a little diagram of t- where to put everything. It's so do. awesome. And I found that out by uh, a complete accident because I was trying to get the cards out and I was having a hard time because they didn't have the channels. Like, oh man, this why would they ever do this? And my finger slipped and it tilted in it and I was like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, and they do have the little diagram, and I don't want people to be confused because, uh, like, when I first put unpacked everything and put it in there, I followed the diagram very carefully. But once you sort of get it, mm-hmm. you don't have to think about how to put things away, you know? Um, setup is, is actually very quick. Putting things away is actually very quick. Um, it's, this has become our game of, hey, somebody showed up 15 minutes early to today's D&D game. We pulled out. We can set it up in, in you know a couple of minutes. We can play the game real quick. And, and now we're getting to other aspects of play. But we can play the game quickly in, in 20 to 30 minutes. And then by the time we're done, everybody's there. And we can pack it up real fast and, and start D&D, you know? Yeah. So that's one thing I love is the box design. The other thing that I'll really praise is the instruction book. Um, and a friend of mine who I, who I play with here in Colorado who used to work for Wizards of the Coast, he's a professional game designer, um, he was saying that he thinks that one of the reasons this, the instruction book is so appealing to me uh, compared to other Euro games, like Tracy was talking about, is that it was written in English first. You know, And other Euro oh. games, they have good translations. It's not a translation problem. It's just that they weren't written in English as a native language, but this one is. So it's it's very clear. You know, I sat down one day and just kind of read through the book, and I, I felt like, yeah, I understand how to play this game now without even touching the pieces mm-hmm. themselves. And the best part of it is on the back page, there's a fantastic mm. quick reference guide. You know, if you're going to set up the game for different numbers of players, all on one page, here's what you give everybody, you know, for gold pieces. And, and starting uh, agents and all that good stuff. And it really does give you, like, it's a good reminder. If you already know how to play the game, but you haven't played it in six months, you can pull this out, look at the back page, read that, and be like, yep, yep, okay, I remember that now. Yeah, it's it's actually pretty fantastic. I think you can pretty much just read that that single page mm-hmm. and know how to play the game if you've got the pieces in front of you and you're sort of looking at it and, and messing with it as you go. But at the yeah. same time, I love the fact that the instruction book has a page with an entry for every single building and every single card and all these things. So if there is something that's a little confusing for you on the card, like all the game pieces themselves pretty much tell you through symbols exactly what you do when you go to that place. Yeah. You know? So you don't really have to think about it and, and consult rules. It's all built into the game itself. But any, every now and then something is kind of confusing. There's an entry for every card and every building and everything that gives you, you know, a paragraph of information about it that suddenly it's like, oh, okay, that makes it very clear and you don't have to question it and, and figure out and make a rules decision or whatever. Um, it's fantastic. I've, I found I, – I read the rule book for Conquest of Narath for a good week 
trying to wrap my head around everything and the complexity of it all. And I read the the rules for Lords of Waterdeep in a day and and got it before I ever pulled out the the pieces. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty incredible. And and some of that has to do with how well it's written, and some of that has to do with just the the simplicity of understanding the rules. Yeah, you know. And the other thing, and this isn't with the physical product, but they did also create an intro video for it. So if mm-hmm. if you're at all concerned, you can always just watch the intro video as well. I'll admit, I never even thought to check out the intro video. I pull out the rule book. I'm like, oh, I had to play this game. This is cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I don't have friends that too. You know, I have friends who are not. um, Some of them are a little bit hesitant to start a new game. Like, oh, we have to learn the rules of a new game. Mm -hmm. But they were they were up for it, and they're like, yeah, I get it, no problem. Once, I mean, it was amazing because like halfway through the first game, people are already saying like, I can't wait to play this again. We got to play another game of this after. You know, Mm -hmm. forget what else we're gonna do today. I want to play this again. Yeah, and I don't have the background with board games that you or some of your friends or whatever might. And so the fact that this is, you know, probably the first Euro-style game that I've ever played, and I got it that quickly, yeah. I, I think speaks yeah. highly of, of how it works. It, it, I, I got to say, I mean, I, I play tons of Euro games. You know, all the, all the classics that people talk about, I, I have them, I play them, I love them. Um, and, and this one, it stacks up right there with the best of them. I mean, this at the mo- it's still new, so I've only played it five times so far, so it hasn't gotten that, you know, oh, yeah, I've played it a million times thing yet. But, <laughs> it's um, still shiny. But still, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I think even after the shiny's worn off, I'm going to feel like this is one of the best games I mm-hmm. own. I mean, it's just excellent. really, really excellent. And one more thing about the, the actual physical product yeah, in a way. Because yeah. uh, I still have my two complaints, so go ahead. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, be, like we were saying, everything is well set up. There's a, a space for everything. They even do uh, setting up for the five different colors. I think it's five. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Each each one has its own section. Like here's your here here are your agents. Here's your little uh, token. Here's your big ruby for a hundred. Overall, because everything was well set up, I knew where to go to grab stuff. I felt more confident running the game, mm-hmm. even though I had only played it once. And that had been, like, months before, and I'm usually really scared about... Like, I don't like to be the person who runs the game the first time, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm never sure what to do. But between the book and between the actual setup of, of everything had a place and I knew where to go for stuff, that made me so feel so more confident in running it for somebody. In this case, my brother. Excellent. But I think it's worth pointing out, too, that, you know, you talk about running it. It's not d and I mean, just in case people get the wrong idea. This is a regular board game, so there is no Dungeon Master. You know, everybody yeah, yeah. is the yeah, same. You don't really, so, mean, you don't really yeah, mean running it. You mean teaching it. Yeah. Teaching it, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also being the person who had – so I just – like in Monopoly where you usually have a banker. Right. It's good to have somebody who – because some of the buildings every – at the start of every round, you had to put different mm-hmm. uh, resources in. Like, I just took over that role pretty quickly of putting all those resources out and making sure that all that stuff was done. Yeah. That, the game sort of suggests that you put that, that bank sort of within reach of everybody, but that's hard to do at any table because the board is within reach of everybody. That is the spot where that would go, <laughs> right? So it, yeah. I do find it easier for just one person. And, you, and yeah, usually it's me because it's my game. Um, for one yeah. person to just, you know, oh, you need three of these cubes or you need some, some one of these or whatever you know so one person just is in charge of getting those things out and, and organizing all that now and, but 
mentioning that points out one other thing that I think is what really well designed. There are only a few buildings in the well, not a few. There's several buildings in the game that do accumulate stuff. Like every round you put a fighter on this building, or every round you put some gold on this building. Um, and what's really cool is those buildings have a slightly different background color. They're a little bit darker in the background. They're sort of like a, a brown, and the other ones are sort of a light mm. yellowish tan. I didn't even notice and that. so you can you can tell at a glance. Yeah, once once I, I didn't realize it at first either. But when you look around the board, like okay, beginning of a new round, what do I need to do? You look for the buildings with the dark backgrounds. Like okay, those need to have something on them. Uh-huh. Got it. Cool. So now for my complaints. Okay. I'll bet I know what one of them is. I have, Go ahead. I have two of them. What do you think one of them is? I was annoyed a little bit by the color of the two different tokens. The, like, there's the ambassador and the lieutenant, and I have no idea which one's which. It doesn't matter in the end. Yeah, but. I don't care, and and it's never come up in play because I yeah. find that those two pieces aren't appealing very to people good. at all. I have, yeah. a, I have a guess. <laughs> Nobody plays them, but I have, I have a guess. Uh-huh. Is it the space it takes? One of them. What's what do you mean by the space it takes? So one problem we had running it was that the board's pretty big. Like, not huge, but... Oh, this, the actual space it takes to play the game? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. You need a big table. You need a big table, and we didn't have one, so we didn't have a way of putting the, the plot quest cards uh, face-up to keep reminding um, ourselves of which ones sure. you had to uh, do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not a big deal, but... <laughs> no, I haven't had that that experience, and I think that's because I played at the same table we're playing D&D, and it's the same table that I've played, like, the adventure system games, like Legend of Drist and, and Wrath of a Shardle and all those. Right. Um, and those take up, in in my experience, more space. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. So um, this doesn't the space issue didn't bother me. It's as much as fantastically designed as the the plastic tray is for holding everything. Mm-hmm. Getting the victory point tokens and the magic piece tokens in and out of those little tiny trays is a serious pain in the butt. Yeah. Really? To the point that I just stopped doing it. When game the game started, I just pulled everything out and made a pile in front of me. <laughs> and there's a pile of gold, oh. and there's a pile of victory points, and I can hand them out that way. And then when the, the game's done, I can spend a few minutes and try to get it. Because the victory points are, aren't symmetrical. So they have to go in a specific way, or at least one of right. two ways, right? Um, yeah. And they're just small, and the tray's a little small. I don't, I don't know how to do it better. Um, you mean during play is a little bit yeah during pain. during play and and right. we're packing up if we're if we're trying to pack up real fast or whatever it it, it yeah. is a it is a pain to get those little tiny pieces manipulated and in the trays and then they're falling sliding and falling down as I'm trying to get the next piece in and then it ends up underneath the other pieces and it's a big pain okay uh, that's true that is a little bit of a niggling point I, I'm with you though it's kind so, of annoying yeah I mean it doesn't affect gameplay nah yeah it, and and the other thing also does not affect gameplay at all I love the way they decided to do something new and interesting and unique with the box design. You know, the the outer, the the top piece is an outer piece and the bottom has sort of an outer piece to it. So you have this, this three-dimensional aspect to the sides. Mm-hmm. But that means that when I take the top off the box, there's nowhere for me to put it. Oh, you can't sit the bottom inside the top. You can't the sit the bottom inside the top. Right. That's a good point. <laughs> and so I always, end up, I always end up with this top sitting around. It's like, I guess I'll just throw it over there for now and get it when yeah. we're done with the game. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I do with it, too. I toss it off on another piece of furniture or a chair someplace. Right. Yeah, yeah that's true. That, that is a, a, I'm with you. That's yeah, sure. slightly annoying. Not enough to diminish anybody's enjoyment of the game, but you're right. right. It's, and, it is, and it is a beautiful box. You know, For, for aesthetically pleasing, they made the yeah. right choice, but for... The convenience of just being able to get that out of the way, so it's not it's not there bothering you. Maybe that'll yeah. be where I put all my gold pieces and victory points. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, we, one thing that go ahead, Tracy. Oh no, no, I was just gonna say with the victory points, uh, we probably did it, did it incorrectly, but we didn't hand out victory points during the game. We just moved our guy. 
our, our little. Well, all right, but there right. there are places like you put the three victory points on each round. Yeah, and then they go the and they go out on the buildings. And yeah, there, yeah, and there are some buildings that col- that accumulate victory points. So th- those tokens do come into play every now and then. Right. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So. But yeah. Well, and, you know, with the box design thing, I, I do like the whole. They have the sort of the bottom and the little middle section that, that's a little bit narrower, and then the top is the same width as the bottom. Mm-hmm. It is annoying that if, if the top were wider than the bottom because at the bottom inside it, but it does mean that it's never hard to get the lid off. You don't have that that's thing true. where you like pick up the, the whole box by mm-hmm. the edges and and wait for the bottom to slowly slide out as the suction gets broken. You know what sure. I mean? Uh-huh. It just lifts it right off and that's you're true. Now, one thing I worry about a little bit, I mean, I'm sure they will do expansions to this game, or I'll be very disappointed if they don't. I mean, I, I think it's been successful. I mean, heck, the Tome Show bump that it's going to get in sales is, I know. is going to be phenomenal, right? So, yeah. I think um, b- both copies that we sell, we'll put it over the edge. Well, we've, already, we've already convinced one person, and we didn't even do the review episode yet. So, Yeah, you, you convinced me, remember? Yeah. <laughs> Did we? You did, yeah. It was it was on on the last episode I was on, or the one before that. That Tracy was still talking about how she was excited about this game, and oh. I was like, okay, I'm going to buy this game, and I'm glad I did. Good job, right Tracy. But um, I'm sure there will be expansions. You know, I just, I mean, I can already see ideas for what kind of new quest cards and intrigue cards and lords that they'll they'll roll out, um, and. It's kind of funny. Like, I feel slightly sad because once I have my extra quest cards and entry cards, like, oh, they're not going to fit in the nice, neat little tray anymore. I have too many. I'll just throw oh, them underneath yeah. the tray or something like that. But that, you know, is a pretty darn minor worry. <laughs> yeah, sure. So let's talk about the the play experience a little bit, although we've actually already talked about that uh, in a few different areas. Um, how, what was our what was our different play experiences like? Now, Tracy, how many times have you played? Twice. Okay, so you played at Gen Con mm-hmm. when it was sort of still in the beta form, yeah, so to speak, and then you then you played it once with your brother, mm-hmm. uh, Michael. You've played it. You said five times or so. Yep, five times. And I think I'm a, I'm a five or six times. I played it now too. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tracy, you've played it with people who are used to gaming. Yes. Michael, as, as you played primarily with your gaming group. Yes. And I've played it with my gaming group. Three or four times, and then with my family a couple of times, which also brings an interesting um, perspective to the whole thing because they're non-gamers. Um, so, does anybody want have any thoughts about the play experience and what they liked and what they didn't like or whatever? Um, I think we have to let Tracy go first on this one. Because if not, I've got a list, but I'll let you guys talk. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I really like... My brother has played some games, but he's mostly a video game person. We haven't played a ton of board games i'm sure he plays with his friends but i hadn't played a lot of board games with him uh and he seemed to enjoy it pretty well uh, i like the slate nods to forgotten realms and stuff that i slowly learned through osmosis through the game too that was pretty awesome mm-hmm. i don't know i want to play again and again and again so <laughs> i've i've actually played this game been more eager to play this game than a lot of the games that that i've played for purposes of review you know i played uh legend of drist for example a handful of times um but those games are take a lot longer to sort of set up mm-hmm. I, I feel like as much as the adventure system games say they're a 30 minute play time they're not you know i, I you have you to say 30 minutes really is it 30 minutes nuts? or an hour maybe it's an hour uh, maybe an hour yeah okay but it's it's I remember the advertised amount of time that it originally said it was like half of what it actually took us to play a game. So That's maybe it's because it, of setup, right? Maybe setup on those yeah. games. A lot of that is setup, absolutely. Yeah. This game is actually a 30 minute game, and I love it for that. Um, 
and even with new players who have never played before, it was still a thirty. It's still been a thirty-minute game every time I played. Um, I played it with my six-year-old, and and he understood it well enough to play. I mean, he wasn't strategizing, you know, but he understood how the game worked well enough. And everything is is done through pictures, right? If you go play your agent at this place, and that and you get two orange cubes, it's just got a picture of two orange cubes, and he can understand two orange cubes. You know, right. uh, at the same time, in that same game, I played with my wife, who is a complete non-gamer. She's never played a role-playing game in her life. The, her her board gaming experience, you know, ranges from Monopoly to Sorry. You know, um, and her her review of the game when we finished was, "Yeah, we can play this again," which which I think is really high praise for somebody yeah, who's a, a, complete, a complete non-gamer. Says, sure. "Yeah, we can play that again." Uh, uh, my son is constantly. Begging for chances to, to get together and play the game. My game group, we played it with them uh, three or four times now, and every one of them has enjoyed it, and we've come back and played it with them several times. Um, the only play experience negative I have, I guess, and I don't know if that's a negative, but you know, the little, you're collecting adventurers to complete quests. Mm-hmm. Nobody I've played with have, have actually referred to them as adventurers. They're, it's not I need th- three fighters or I need uh, two rogues or whatever. It's always give me three oranges, give me a couple blacks. You know, and we always right. just refer to them in the different colors, which is fine. Um, you know, it doesn't affect yeah. again. It doesn't affect gameplay. Well, so so my thoughts on gameplay. Like I said, I played five times. Every time it's been with a group of five, which is the maximum number of players you can have. Mm-hmm. So I've not tried the two player, three player, four player versions yet. Uh, I will say with five players, we have not played anywhere close to half an hour. I mean, it's been probably an hour and a half, honestly, for most oh, wow. of our games. Yeah, it's been a lot longer, but that's fine. I mean, that's what I want at a board game. Um, and I think it would be quicker with fewer players, but but that was fine. None of us minded. Um, and we did just we we had two different weekends where I think we played it twice one weekend. And then we played it three times the other weekend, and um, and that's like pretty much all we did on our Sunday afternoon for gaming. Like we were thinking about playing some other games too, but we were having so much fun with this one that um, you know we just played the heck out of it. And uh, I will say that we've played five times. I have yet to win. I have never won this <laughs> game, and yet I still love it and want to play it some more. Um, I don't think I finished dead last yet, <laughs> but I finished in fourth place, and I finished in second and third, um, and and I, I still think it's very cool. Uh, I think that uh, there's certainly strategy in the game, definitely. It's not just, you know, random luck decides who wins and loses. You know, you drew the right cards, oh, you win. Um, You definitely can make good moves and poor moves. Uh, But not to the point that, you know, if you're a newer player, you're just going to get crushed. I mean, there are certainly some games out there, you know, even good Euro games where you just have no chance and you're going to have very little fun if you don't really know the game and you're playing against somebody who does. And this one, you know, it's it's a fairly level playing field. And... uh, and and you won't. Uh, it's kind of nice that you don't necessarily know that you're losing until the end. You know, mm. when you have the final tally of points. Um, you know, find, there's a few subtleties. Go ahead. I find it interesting that it's, that you've cons- that with five players, it's taking you an hour and a half to play, though. Because um, I found that it scales very well. I mean, part of what it does is the more players there are, the fewer agents you have, so the fewer, right. the less time there is between rounds. Uh, I found that when it does slow down, it's just because somebody hasn't thought through what they wanted to do, which is which well, is fine. That's it. Um, and, and but typically, I think I, I feel like there's just about enough time in between each of your your own personal actions that you kind of know what you want to do and where you want to go. Like I've I've already planned out my next three moves, assuming those places are still available when it, when my moves come along. Well, you know, well, um, but with the five player thing, you only get I think the two agents to start with, so each move is more important than when you're, yeah, when you're playing with fewer yeah. number of players, and you can. Uh, afford to kind of waste a move. And, and I definitely have players in my group who 
really think things through. You know, their sure. turn comes up and they're like, okay, wow, I have all these buildings left I could play on. Hmm, let me look at my quests again. Let me check my intrigue cards again. Sure. Hmm. You know, it depends on the, the people. Um, some people are very quick with their turns. Some people take a while. And so I, I think that if you had five players who were, like you're talking about, Jeff, like yourself, I think that, yeah, it would be faster than that. Probably an hour, though. I don't think it would be less than an hour, at least not based on what I've seen so far. But okay. I don't know. Maybe you guys are really just very fast. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that the play has been really fun. I think that we haven't discovered any single dominant strategy or anything either. You know, mm-hmm. like some people really love the intrigue cards and they're going to Waterdeep Harbor every turn because when you go to Waterdeep Harbor, you get to play an intrigue card and then at the end of the round, you get to redeploy that agent someplace else to do another action. It's like getting a free round. Exactly. I know. And some people are like, oh man, I got to do that all the time. But, you know, in order to make that work, you have to keep getting intrigue cards somewhere. So you might be sacrificing what could be otherwise more useful actions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can work, but it doesn't always work. Um, you know, certain quests seem like they're very powerful, um, especially the ones that have some plot effect. If you get them early on, um, then, you know, like you were talking about, Tracy, you know, every time you get a rogue, then something cool happens to you. You get some other bonus resource. Um, some of those can be uh, kind of game-changing. You know, there's one that lets you, for the rest of the game, once per round, you can put your agent on a space that somebody else has already taken, uh, which can be just huge because, I mean, part of the game is, you know, getting to the resource before no anybody else can because it's scarce and uh and having that ability from that quest is is really huge so but it hasn't been unbalancing though i think the people who've gotten that it definitely changes the feel of the game which i like uh, but it hasn't been like oh that's the i win button you just you got that card you're lucky you you win the game um so you know it does change things but not in a way that's unfair or unfun right and I will say, as far as strategy, one tip I'll give people is try to take note of what's scarce. Because typically, like if, if there were no additional build, buildings added to the game, everything would be about of equal scarcity. And here I'm talking about the four types of adventurers. But usually what will happen is certain buildings will start getting built that will introduce more clerics to the supply or more rogues to the supply. Um, and if there's only ever that one source of fighters or that only one source of wizards or something like that and you notice that multiple people are taking the kind of quests that require a lot of fighters mm-hmm. or wizards you're gonna have to fight for those so mm-hmm. take that into account when you decide what quest you want to take and what uh, you know what what resources you want to take first yeah have you has anybody actually had the experience where you run out of squ- cubes mm-hmm. no not yet yeah the, i think well the, the, I, in total you mean or in- yeah oh no i haven't had that no we actually had and and the the rules actually have uh explanation about what to do when that right. happens, and, and it came up, I think in the first or second game we played, and I think oh. I think there were like two or three, two or three of us that were playing that were all going for the same color, uh, and, and we and we just we completely ran out. And there there are no more fighters, and the rules say <laughs> when there's no more in the bank, there are no more fighters in town to hire. <laughs> oh, cool! People just gotta start spending them on stuff to put them back in the bank if you want to keep get collecting. Right. That's very interesting. Yeah. And it, and it brings it adds a, a slightly different element to the to the whole thing. So, the one thing I'm interested in, and this may be, I don't, like kind of silly, but using the game on an off night, or if you have an ongoing campaign in Waterdeep, it might be kind of cool to play this game every, you know, so many weeks, and and then use the results of it to to mm. change Waterdeep in your game. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that could be cool. I'd be all for that. Yeah. You know, I think in our game so far, we haven't really played around with the flavor too much. I mean, Jeff, to your point, you know, we do tend to talk about the colors of the cubes more than the roles, but we talk about the roles somewhat too. And it's sort of funny. I mean, ultimately, you are a lord of Waterdeep. You are, you have a tavern that you're kind of set up shop in, and you are hiring adventurers and sending them out on quests. And what's sort of interesting is that 
you do spend the adventurers when you send them on a quest and they complete it. You know, I, I need six six fighters, a cleric, and two wizards for this quest. And so you spend them and they're gone. And I know you can probably think of that as well. You'd have to rehire them again. Uh, but I, I like to think of it as you're sending them off to their doom and <laughs> they're all dead. You know? <laughs> but don't worry, they'll they'll make more. New, new adventurers always wander through town. So it's looking at D and D from the employer's perspective, which sure. is kind of interesting. Kind of, yeah. All right. So any other uh, last thoughts on Lords of Waterdeep before we wrap this thing up? Go buy it, go play it. You'll be very happy you did. Yeah, it's actually it's very good. It's a, it's a great little fun game to to pull out, you know, in between in between game sessions or before them. Um and more affordable than um than some of the other board games that Wizards of the Coast have put out. Yeah. yeah. I think the, the full retail price is like 50 bucks or something. Yeah, which is se- it was the- 70 for the other games, right? If you buy it through the Tome Show's Amazon store, you can probably get it even cheaper, right? I'm pulling it up right now. Give me a second. <laughs> I think I paid like 32 bucks for it through Amazon when I got it. So, Tracy, any last thoughts? Same thing. Play it. I still love it. Had that taste in the Gen Con, and it carried through. I gotta say, I'm impressed. I mean, the, the fact that I didn't realize you only played it the one time before you got it, um, and, and yet it still was seared in your memory. So that's that speaks very highly for the the drawing power of Lords of Waterdeep. Yeah, Tracy, well, and- Tracy's been talking about this game for almost a year now. Yeah, nine months or so. Yeah, and uh, Fred, <laughs> Fred also got to play it uh, during Gen Con. And uh, my husband and and he also loved it. He didn't he didn't play this weekend, but he he definitely talks about that experience playing uh-huh. it, and he and he really liked it too. And he he doesn't play a lot of board games. So. That lucky guy, he beat me out for that spot. I know. And I think just a a, a shout out is necessary. I'm looking at the credits. I mean, it's Rodney Thompson and Peter Lee are uh-huh. listed as the the main designers, and then Joe Huber, Peter Lee, and Mons Johnson Johnson as the developers. So and I suppo- nice job, gentlemen. And I suppose before we go, we actually talked to Rodney Thompson for the episode before this one, and he said a few words while we had him there about Lords of Waterdeep. So I suppose we should take a quick break and let Sam edit that in now, and we can hear from him. Right on. And so your big credit right now is Lords of Waterdeep. That's the one That's right. that, that uh, Wizards is talking a lot about anyway. Yeah, it's the most recent game that we've put out, and uh, I'm very proud of it. I would say it's very easy for me to say that it's in my top five favorite products that I've ever created. It might be the thing I'm proudest, the thing I'm proudest of, of all of my design credits. Right on. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about Lords of Waterdeep. Um, I'm a D&D player. I'm not really into board games. Tell me, what is Lords of Waterdeep? Lords of Waterdeep is a strategy board game, which is a it's the formal name for what people often refer to as Euro-style games. And basically in these kind of games, you tend to focus more on abstract concepts. And so in this game, you're a Lord of Waterdeep, right? The secret rulers of the City of Splendors. In, in Waterdeep, the rulers, uh, all of them except for one, are masked. That means their secret identities, right? And so they meet with these masks on and nobody knows who is who, right? So you play one of these Lords of Waterdeep, and what you're doing is you've got some organization that you've allied yourself with, and you're sending your agents out into the city to recruit adventurers who then go on quests on your behalf. And when they complete those quests, you gain power and prestige and other rewards, uh, and that's typically in the form of victory points, so that over the course of the game, you're basically getting adventurers, sending them on quests, reaping the rewards... 
lather, rinse, repeat. Uh, and then by the end of the game, you've accumulated a pretty good base of completed quests. Uh, you also buy buildings, and basically you can become the owner of, like, the Yawning Portal or um, the Hero's Garden or things like that. They're all locations from the city of Waterdeep. Uh, and then those basically are the new actions that come into the game. So you're you're sending your agents out, and you that's represented by you'd have these little uh, agent tokens that go on spaces, and when you put your uh, agent on a space, no one else can go there until your agents are removed. So there's sort of a competitive, like, oh, I gotta pick the right actions and get them before you get them uh, aspect of the game. It's it's a bit different for, for D&D board games. I mean, up to this point, our biggest successes have been, you know, Castle Ravenloft uh, and the Adventure System games, which are very much a board game translation of the classic dungeon crawl, and then, of course, Conquest of Nerath, which was a sort of large-scale warfare game. Well, this time, you know, we focused on the dungeon crawl, we focused on big warfare, this time we're focusing more on the intrigue and politics side of things, which necessitates a game that is less direct head-to-head comment and more of that sort of back-alley dealings and, uh, you know, inevitable betrayals and things like that. So where does it fit in on, on sort of the levels of complexity? You know, um, Adventure System and, and Conquest of Nerath, um, you know, uh, say I've played some of those. Is this an easier game to grasp, a harder game to grasp? Where do you sort of see this in the continuum? I'd like to think that it's, it's uh, to steal the tagline from Othello, it's easy to learn and difficult to master. Because I can actually sit here and teach you guys how to play in about ten minutes. It's very fast, it's very, I mean, and, and explain every rule in the game in like ten minutes. Uh, we can start playing, and what I found is, as I teach the game to people, basically on the first round of the game, I might have to answer a few questions, but by the end of the first round, they've got it, and they, they run it themselves. So I would say that it's got some it's got a pretty easy basic set of rules that are are, are relatively easy to understand but as the game develops the game grows more complex so more buildings come out more actions come out more quests come out etc so that as the game progresses your your choices are tougher and you have to make smarter decisions so you know you you have ramped up the complexity by the end of the game then once you've played the game two or three times you start to learn the cards and start to see the patterns that emerge and all of a sudden now it's a much more aggressively strategic game so i would say that it's it's really good at easing you into complexity and you created a video too right for explaining the basic rules of the game yeah we've done how to play videos for the last three games uh conquest of nerath legend of drist and uh, Lords of Waterdeep, and so you can actually find those on YouTube or on our website. So um, it's about eight minutes long. It's mostly a thorough overview, although there's still a few things you might need to get out of the rule book. But yeah, it, I, I often find that it's very easy for me to learn how to play a game when someone's explaining it to me, whereas reading a rule book, I, my mind starts to wander. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, what which of the board games you th- do you think this is your favorite of the board games then that you've that you've worked on? You know, it's it's hard for me to say anything other than yes because <laughs> you know it, 
it's funny. Most people, and I'm, I'm definitely this way, but a lot of people that are game designers, when they design a game or design a product, by the time they're done with it, they're they're done with it, right? Like there are books that like that I have written that I can't even open now because the process of creating it was so arduous, or you're just so immersed in it that you're sick of it by the time you're done with it, and that never happened with Lords of Waterdeep. And from beginning to end, I loved playing the game and I I never love the things that I design I'm extremely critical of my own work and so you know like the day after one of the books that I worked on releases I'm looking at it going oh I could have done this better right <laughs> with Lords of Waterdeep I'm really excited about it even now even now that it's out even though I've played it probably 150 times I'm still excited about the game and that never happens sweet nice any more Lords of Waterdeep questions there Tracy I can't think of any. I know it's your f- new favorite thing. It's been my new favorite thing since Gen Con, so. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. And I didn't get to play it at Gen Con, but I've played it three times in the last week. Oh, yeah? And my, uh, my completely non-gamer wife, after playing one game, said, yeah, we could play this again, which, <laughs> which, which I'll tell you is high praise. Yeah. My my girlfriend is usually pretty good about trying out new board games, but she definitely steers towards the lighter end of the spectrum. And I think because I forced her to play it with me so much when it was in such a primitive state, now she's just like, Yeah, let's let's play Quirkle instead or something like that. <laughs> right. So uh she does not quite have the the <laughs> excitement for a developing game that I do. Right on. Alright, should we come back and wrap this thing up? Well, and that's Lords of Waterdeep. We'd like to thank Gamerati.com, Continue Magazine, and our guest, Michael. Michael, where can uh, people find you online? You can find me on Twitter as OnlineDM1 or at my blog, which is OnlineDungeonMaster.com. All right, and if you want to get a hold of the show, you can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Call the Tomes Bizline at 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And you can swing by the forums at GamersHavenPodcast.com. And if you want to contact Tracy about what to do with episode 200. She is at Tracy at SarahDarkMagic.com, right? Yep. All right, so Tracy at SarahDarkMagic.com. People should email her with ideas for what to do for episode 200 because she is in charge and I am putting it out of my mind for the next five episodes. And if people want to find links for things discussed in the show and in show notes and what have you, they can go to thetomeshow.com to see all that. Great. And that is episode 194, where we vied for control of one of the largest metropolises of Faerun by playing Lords of Waterdeep in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm on the wall.